If we started growing these petri dish kind of mini brains to avoid experimenting on live humans, at what point have we just reached the point where we've grown a sufficiently complex mini brain to then run into the ethical dilemma that we wanted to avoid in the first place? Today, we talk about artificial intelligence as well as evidence for consciousness. The infamous problem of other minds has embedded in it the question of how to explicitly test for consciousness, perhaps also how to test for degrees of consciousness if consciousness isn't merely binary. That is, specifically, can we test for consciousness in infants and animals? It seems obvious to most that babies are conscious, but what are the arguments for and against? And same with animals. If you think animals are conscious, then at what point does that start. For instance, are viruses conscious? Similarly, if you think animals are not conscious, then where does it end? Why are we conscious? At least seemingly, but animals are not, if that's the argument that's being made. Further, another question that's raised is, well, what rights do AIs have? That is, what ethical rights apply to emerging artificial intelligences like large language models? Claudia Pesos is an assistant professor of bioethics at NYU studying infant consciousness. Garrett Mindet is a professor of philosophy at Florida Atlantic University focused on novel information theoretic metaphysics. And Carlos Monte Mayer is a professor of philosophy whose research focuses on the intersection between philosophy, epistemology, and cognitive science. This panel is from the MindFest conference brought to you by the Center for the Future Mind, filmed stylishly at the beautiful beach of Florida Atlantic University. Thank you to Susan Schneider for organizing this. We also have from that conference, Stephen Wolfram, who talks about physics, consciousness, and ChatGPT, as well as Ben Gortzel giving a lecture on the same topic. My name is Kurt Jaimungle. My background is in mathematical physics, and this channel is called Theories of Everything. It's dedicated to explicating the variegated landscape of theories of everything, of toes, primarily from a mathematical perspective, from a physics perspective, but we also explore the constitutive role consciousness may have in engendering the laws as we see them. Thank you to Brilliant for help subsidizing the cost, the traveling costs. You may not know this, but I pay out of my own personal pocket for every expense, such as flight fees, taxi fees, food fees, even subscriptions such as software tools, Adobe, for instance, the editor editing this right now, different capital like increased RAM and computers and so on. So help from yourself via Patreon, patreon.com slash Kurt helps a tremendous, tremendous amount. And secondly, sponsors help a tremendous amount. Because of all of your support, we're able to bring Toe to you at zero cost. Enjoy this panel with Claudia Pesos, Garrett Mindet, and Carlos Montemayor, providing different perspectives on consciousness. Okay, so I uh, will speak about infant consciousness. I'll start with this. Um, provocative title, Are Infants Conscious? So uh, this is part of my research project uh, where I'm trying to, uh, to see what theories of consciousness can tell us about infant consciousness, what are their predictions. Uh, but also I have a part of this project that is related to what it's like to be a newborn, what kind of phenomenology they can have. So it's tried to cover uh, many issues in infant consciousness, uh, from theories to uh, phenomenology. Okay, so uh, are infants conscious? So we know that infants are awake, attentive, they smile to us, they uh, move their eyes, uh, they respond to uh, stimuli in the environment, but are they conscious? Are they have subjective experiences, okay? 
So this is a question not just for, for, for infants, but also questions for other creatures. Are machine conscious? Are animal conscious? Are cerebral organized conscious? Are uh, patients in vegetative states conscious? Okay? So this is a question that we call uh, the distribution problem in philosophy. So how consciousness is distributed among uh, other creatures? And the question here is, how can you know in creatures that don't have verbal reports that cannot tell us uh, their feelings? How can you know if they're conscious or not? Okay, can we rely on their behaviors? Uh, and what kind of behaviors might indicate that they're conscious? Okay. So I'm concerned here with phenomenal consciousness. So phenomenal consciousness is subjective experience. I think Anand's talk uh, explained a lot of, uh, for us what uh, phenomenal consciousness uh, is and definition of phenomenal consciousness. So I'm not uh, bringing the definition here. I'm just concerned about uh, uh, what type of, uh, if infants have this type of subjective experience. So our newborns, and this is relevant, I'm talking about infants, but I'm much more concerned about the beginning of life infants at birth, so neonates and newborns, are we, when we are born, are we conscious, okay? So this raises the problem of infant minds. So like animals, in the case of infants, we don't have verbal reports or introspective thoughts to tell us if they're conscious or not. Uh, so how can we know whether infants are conscious? We cannot directly observe conscious, consciousness in others, even in adults. But in the case of other humans, adults, we can rely on verbal reports. So you all here can tell me if you are conscious or not of a stimulus that I present to you. But you cannot ask infants if they are conscious or not of that stimulus. So if you cannot use verbal reports, what kind of evidence can we use? So this raises a type of dilemma. We cannot rely on first-person methods that we call first-person methods, verbal reports or introspective uh, thoughts. We cannot rely on those in this methodology in the case of infants to measure consciousness in infants. But we know that third-person methods are insufficient for detect consciousness. So a behavior marker can not uh, be sufficient to tell us if a creature is conscious or not. Okay, so which methods can we use? Okay, so this is my preferred method that comes from uh, animal consciousness literature. We can combine first-person uh, first methods that comes from adults, the way adults report uh, when they are conscious uh, of a stimulus. We can combine this with third-person methods like behavior or neuromarkers, and from, those, uh, from this type of evidence, from both adult human case and infant case, we can infer that infants uh, are conscious. So this methodology, uh, from this methodology we can infer that the best way to explain that behavior, the best way to explain the neuromarker we are finding in infants uh, is that the infants are conscious. So it's the inference of the best explanation. So we start first observing correlations between consciousness and behavior or brain processes in adults. 
From those, uh, for this type of observation, we can explain correlations in the case of adults, correlations with their brain states and correlations uh, with their behaviors that correlates when they uh, tell us introspectively that they are conscious. Through this, we can isolate behavior and neuromarkers of consciousness. And once you have those behavior and neuromarkers of consciousness, we can see if infants have those same behavior and neuromarkers. And from this, we can determine that the best way to explain the presence of those markers in infants is that infants are conscious, okay? So I will suggest two approaches that can help us to detect those neuromarkers and behavior markers. One approach is through behavior, observation of behavioral and neurological signs of consciousness, neurobiological signs of consciousness. And a second approach is through theories of consciousness. How theories of consciousness can tell us uh, what type of neuromarker or behavior marker are indication of consciousness. So um, in this talk, I won't have time to go through all the theories, so I thought the best way to introduce the topic would be to focus, and this is what I do, to focus on the first approach, and I'll just say a little bit in the end something about theories of consciousness. Okay, behavior and neurobiological signs of consciousness. So I focus, I focus most on pain as a test case, but everything I would say about pain uh, could be applied with the sensory system. Uh, we can use the same type of methodology to infer consciousness through perception and uh, sensory systems. Why am I'm choosing pain? Because pain is a paradigmatic case in philosophy and psychology of a conscious experience, okay? And there is a very uh, large debate in the past whether infants feel pain or not. And we still find nowadays some philosophers that, and uh, neuroscientists that sometimes raise some skeptical uh, 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 issues related to pain experience in infants, okay? Um, so pain in infants. We know that adults uh, uh, feel pain and they can uh, report as a variety of types of, of experience of pain, so different types of experience. But do, do infants feel pain? So behavior and neurophysiological and anatomic evidence of pain, we can find those, okay? Presence of avoidance reactions to bodily damage like mammals in general. Presence of specific adult humans reactions. They have face expressions, they have behavior expressions, uh, crying, and similar brain regions. I saw, I'll, I'll show one evidence related to brain regions. Similar neuromechanisms are activated when they expose to, uh, to noxious stimuli, okay? So what are the behavioral signs? Uh, the behavioral signs of conscious, they have outer vital signs, pain crying, facial expression, body movements, and avoidance reactions that become a very important marker uh, uh, of pain experience also to detect pain experience in animals. Okay? And this is a nice uh, um, result from, from a new experimental paradigm uh, trying to show that infants not just have the same type of reaction, behavior reactions to pain with the same uh, level or intensity of pain than an adult. This is a, a experimental paradigm where newborn and their moms, their 
so an adult and an infant were exposed to the same level and intensity of pain, and they showed similar uh, behavior reactions, but also they infants show similar brain regions being activated in uh, when they are feeling pain in those cases. Okay, so from uh, adults have 20 areas of the brain activated when they feel pain, and infants have 18 from those 20 areas. So pretty similar. Uh, uh, you can see from the uh, from the the image that pretty pretty similar areas are, are activated. So from the behavioral signs we have and neuromarkers of pain, we can the best explanation to. Uh, the, the, the best explanation for those behaviors and those neuromarkers is that infants are feeling, are conscious of their pain experience. And from then, from this, you can have an argument from pain behavior. So first premise, pain experience explains avoidance reactions in adults. Infants and adults have similar avoidance reactions. If a pain experience explains avoidance reactions in adults, it explains similar avoidance reactions in infants. Conclusion, pain experience explains avoidance reactions in infants. Uh, however, uh, we know we cannot uh, uh, reply, reply completely to all those skeptical, skeptical considerations a skeptical can have. So for instance, let's see this kind, of, uh, the image is a little bit blurry, but uh, the idea of this slide is to show you different faces uh, and how it's difficult with just so different faces that express reactions that are similar to pain it's hard to tell which of those babies is really feeling pain. Some of those ba babies might just be uh, irritated or frustrated or feeling anger or feeling some kind of, of um, distress but not really pain uh, reaction. So we know that there is a residual, skept uh, uh, the residual challenge in this case, but I think Still, the best explanation for this is that uh, infants are having uh, pain reactions, as in the case of adults, and this go together with uh, a type of pain experience that adults can have. Okay, although I acknowledge the ki this kind of that residual skepticism can come back, I think the best way to explain the. Uh, the, the scientific evidence and the behavioral observation we have is that infants are having uh, conscious experiences. So now fears of consciousness, I, will, I won't have time to really uh, go into details with it theory. What I want to do in this, uh, with this uh, final part of the talk is just go for a kind of overview of the theories and what the theories can tell us about uh, infant consciousness. So what is relevant in the case of theories of consciousness is, is philosophical and scientific theories that can give us sufficient or necessary conditions for consciousness, okay? Uh, because we need those, if the theory just explain consciousness without those postulate any kind of uh, necessary and sufficient conditions, it's hard for us to predict if, if infants are conscious or not. But some theories, some scientific theories and some philosophical theories, they come with some um, 
some more objective predictions about, ob objective measures about uh, consciousness. So those are the theories I've I think are the most interesting to discuss the case of infant consciousness. So first you are the representationalism. I will address one type of representationalist uh, uh, theory, but this could apply to many first order uh, representationalist theory, high order theories, and among the scientific, scientific theories, integrated information theory and global workspace theory. As I said before, I. I don't have time to go in details what, uh, how those theories, what are the kind of measure those theories uh, propose, but I'm happy to, to say a little bit more in the Q&A. Uh, I would just say what, given those theories, what are their predictions related to infant consciousness? So representationalist theories and integra integrated, and I have in mind here an old version of representationalism that is panic proposed by Tai and integrated information theory. Those theories clearly predict that infants uh, are conscious, okay, for the way they suggest uh, the sufficient and necessary conditions they propose for their theories. Some forms of high-order theories would r raise a problem for infant consciousness. So uh, some, some, some high-order theories that suggest that uh, consciousness correlates with higher cognition that require uh, representation to be represented for, uh, for the, the creature be conscious of that representation, this theory will be a challenge for infant consciousness. However, there are versions of those high-order theories that postulate less high-order cognition. For instance, the self-representationalism version of the theory could be compatible with infant consciousness. Uh, and some frontal high-order versions of global workspace theory so global workspace theory will tell us that uh, for, a, uh, for a, a stimulus to be conscious, uh, that stimulus has to be broadcast in a global workspace in the frontal areas of the brain. And we know that infants don't have those frontal, frontal areas well developed. They are st those areas are still developed. I would just say a little bit about brain development. So global workspace theory, would have a problem to infer that infants are conscious if infants don't have the, the prefrontal areas. But I still think that a less high order version of global workspace theory might be compatible with infant consciousness. We can combine, I'll, I'll just tell about the slides, we can combine this with uh, evidence from synaptogenesis from brain development where she, uh, this, this evidence from synaptogenesis shows us that the brain develops first, or the areas that the brains are, are areas of the brain that are activated first, are areas related to sensory and motor uh, uh, cortex, and just later, prefrontal cortex and all the areas that are related to cognition will be activated. Okay, so given that, my assessment is. There is independent reason to think that high-order 
theories uh, and frontal global workspace theories impose a kind of overly demanding condition for consciousness because impose this idea that you need high order cognition for consciousness. Uh, it's independently implausible that consciousness requires those high, high order uh, uh, cognitive processes and high order concepts. So phenomenal consciousness often involves sensory uh, uh, consciousness. Okay, or sensory experience without those higher order thoughts. And if this is right, the theories that require as uh, sufficient and necessary conditions uh, uh, cog uh, higher cognitive thoughts or higher concepts are theories that might be uh, over demanding for, for consciousness. So if it's so, the most plausible theories are consistent with consciousness in newborns. Okay, so conclusion, neurobiological and behavioral evidence suggests that infants are conscious at birth. The most plausible theories of consciousness also are consistent with consciousness in infants. Um, a further question that I can see a little bit in the Q&A is how this methodology could be applied to the case of AI consciousness or AI systems or machine consciousness. Okay, thank you. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. 
it's also extremely affordable. The Henson razor works with the standard dual edge blades that give you that old school shave with the benefits of this new school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. Okay, thanks. Uh, I will talk uh, a bit about uh, many of the topics that uh, Claudia uh, talked about uh, in the context of uh, animal consciousness. So uh, one thing that I want to address is how interesting it is that we have very asymmetric intuitions about animals and machines. So we're very inclined to fantasize about artificial intelligence becoming conscious, but we know animals are conscious and we don't give them moral standing or legal standing. So I want to address that a little bit and then talk about the kind of considerations that Claudia was talking about. So one thing that is important is in, in the context of talking about intelligence, so I'm going to talk a little bit more about intelligence in general. Uh, it is not absolutely obvious that consciousness entails intelligence. And it is not obvious that intelligence necessitates particular kinds of phenomenal consciousness. Uh, and I, I think that it's interesting here to talk about two different aspects. So in artificial intelligence, people talk about agency, agents being intelligent, but rarely do they think that these agents are conscious. They, they just think that they're agents that can solve problems. And animals definitely have that, we have that. But animals on top of that have uh, 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 Phenomenal consciousness. So I, I want to distinguish that and, and uh, mention this distinction between access and phenomenal consciousness. Uh, and I, I, I think of this distinction in terms of two different kinds of cognitive grounding for agency. So an agent has intentions to act, and those intentions to act are relevant for how that agent solves their problems. And it's not obvious that you need to be phenomenally conscious in the relevant philosophical sense to do that. It's also not obvious that you don't need that, right? So it, it's just a, 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 an interesting question to ask. So one in the literature, I mean, I'll mention a few people that talk this way, but uh, in the literature on animal condition, uh, cognition, one thing that you can say about animals that are conscious is that they have a kind of anchoring uh, provided by access functions, uh, uh, what, what block, NetBlock calls access consciousness, you can think of that, uh, this is still philosophical work happening now, but for example, Daniel Stolger thinks of access consciousness as a kind of integrated attention, and you can distinguish between consciousness and attention, psychologists do uh, all the time. And so that kind of anchoring gives you a kind of agency that is epistemically important because it allows you to solve many problems, but also there's a kind of anchoring that is provided by phenomenal consciousness, which is the relevant notion of consciousness that of course, uh, Nagel and, and Dave Chalmers have contributed to. And this kind of anchoring provides a kind of familiarity that, uh, that we would not have without the, what is it like to be off? What is it like to experience pain, et cetera? So when we experience pain in the example Anand was uh, talking about, it's not just that we're sensing bodily damage. We, we are familiar with something badly happening to us. Um, Okay, so that, that also complicates the picture with respect to the kinds of preferences, needs, uh, styles of cognition, styles of mental agency, 
Uh, it also makes us more vulnerable than other uh, systems to, to conflicts between these kinds of values and, and, and uh, goals. Uh, and in, in other terms, this broad distinction between access and phenomenal consciousness seems to entail a kind of uh, two, seems to entail two different kinds of perspective uh, or perspectives on the world, which is another way people think about the, the first person point of view. And, and of course, in philosophy, the, the first person point of view that really matters is the one of phenomenal consciousness, because that's the one that seems to be reducible to function. Okay, so phenomenal consciousness, we've talked about it. Um, we, in the Nagel original article, uh, Nagel talks about bats. Of course, that's a very famous thing about Tom Nagel, that uh, his paper is called What's It Like to Be a Bat? We think animals, most of them, have this kind of phenomenal consciousness. Uh, and uh, moreover, uh, contributions after Nagel, uh, again by Dave Chalmers, but also other philosophers, is that it's not just that there's something that is like to be a conscious animal or a conscious creature, is that the content of what is it like is extremely specific to our experience. So there's something very specific about what is it like for us to experience pain of a certain kind, what is it like to experience lime when we're eating uh, key lime pie or something like that. Uh, and the, 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 the question that is interesting here is where to draw the, where to create a cutoff in the animal kingdom. It could be greatest, it could be like, a, you know, these animals are not conscious, these are conscious. In a very recent uh, paper uh, uh, that I commented on, uh, some uh, authors want to say that most cr crustaceans are conscious in the phenomenal conscious sense that matters to philosophers, because they clearly experience pain, uh, according to many metrics. Uh, it's kind of hard to think about bees doing that. I mean, you heard some of the philosophical views. If you're a panpsychist, you can be a, either a pan intentionalist, and then the question of whether you're phenomenally conscious or not is up for grabs. Uh, but uh, there's many things you can say about this, but in, in, the, in the literature on animal cogni cognition, what uh, researchers are interested in is can we have a set of measures that we commonly use to identify consciousness in humans and apply them to a set of animals that we never protect because we think they're kind of like machines, or you know, I don't know what we think about crustaceans, but the idea is, yeah, crustaceans count as conscious in the phenomenal sense. Uh, and again, here, this is interesting because of the asymmetry we have in, this, in our intuitions that we don't think, I mean, we, we, it's kind of funny. We think that if AI, if ChatGPT4 becomes conscious somehow, that it deserves to have rights, right? It deserves because it, it would be kind of conscious. But we never do that with animals, even though our intuitions are clearly that they're conscious. I mean, that's, uh, that's the beginning of the Tom Nagel paper. It's obviously bats are conscious, right? Uh, so it, that's just a funny asymmetry uh, that we need to think about. Um, now, phenomenal consciousness comes with, and, and again, this is something that Anand um, said, said a lot about, uh, so I'm not going to stop here. Uh, more recent work by Dave, again, uh, talks about this. Phenomenal needs come with a specific kind of familiarity that is very rich in content, right? So Nick Humphrey says that it's, 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 it's what makes our lives meaningful. Like, if we lost consciousness, we might be able to be intelligent, but our lives wouldn't be as meaningful or as valuable and we certainly, according to Humphrey, would not have aesthetic experiences. Uh, according to many others, we wouldn't have moral capacities of the relevant kind. Hume said without experienced empathy, we would not be able to develop our moral capacities. Uh, other authors, uh, Robert Sapolsky and Franz de Baal, 
says uh, these capacities that are empathic, you can find them in many animals, most animals even, uh, and they are crucial for a sense of familiarity and bo social bonding. Uh, and so again, the, uh, the, the idea is, is not just that some animals are conscious, some animals are conscious in a way that really resembles the way we're conscious. So it's, it's just a tricky question. Uh, what, what kind of standing we're going to give them if we don't want to give them moral or legal standing, right? Um, there's also this other thing that, I mean, this is a funny way of parsing things. It's a, it's a way that I like to parse things because it, it speaks to the two perspectives that I'm talking about, the familiarity perspective of phenomenal consciousness that makes our lives valuable and, and all that. And this other epistemic uh, perspective uh, where what you have here is what philosophy of mind was all about during the period of like representationalism versus other views, which is uh, you have uh, the mind, I mean, it, this is very much related to Brentano's notion of the mind that Anand also talked about, the intentionality of the mind, that our minds are about something. Well, they're about something because they're representational engines, because they're representational things. So they, our minds represent the environment, our perceptual capacities represent the, our environment through accuracy and reliability functions. So uh, if I want some water, which I definitely do, I need to represent the glass, I need to pick the glass in the right way. Those are parts of my uh, perceptual representational capacities. Um, there are justificatory capacities. So uh, in a, a, a very important epistemic need is to justify <coughs> our reasoning uh, and to give reasons to each other. So if I want to get to the campus and you tell me that I need to take a shuttle and the shuttle doesn't exist, then I'm going to say, well, what justified you to say that? What, what, what reasons did you have? That's kind of part of our linguistic practices. And I mean, the idea, I mean, at least according to some philosophers, the representationalist that Claudia mentioned, uh, you probably can do a lot of that without phenomenal consciousness. Right? Oh, that's a question. How much of that can you do? That relevant question for AI too, right? Um, the cooperative and, and sort of more heavily uh, social epistemic skills, they do seem to require some different kind of uh, need to like have collective action, collective uh, attention, collective forms of dependence and, and uh, uh, goal-oriented behavior. But again, many animals do this. Um, they do it in a way that probably, even though even if they're conscious, if they were not conscious, they would still do it. So just as a quick example, very famous example in the animal literature, bees do a lot of these things, right? Bees represent their environment, they're justified in representing it this way because it's accurate. According to some epistemic views, that's enough to have epistemic justification. They cooperate. They don't have language, but they communicate in very precise ways. And they have things like the waggle dance, which they interpret linguistically, so that doesn't look completely trivial. Um, and just think about you, like being with some other folks in a forest trying to get around it. It's not trivial. These tiny creatures do it very precisely. And so you can say, well, are bees phenomenally conscious? Maybe, maybe not, but are, do they satisfy these capacities? Yeah, they do. Um, so in the literature, uh, I don't want to bore you too much with this, but uh, in the literature on, on phenomenal consciousness, the, one of the main examples come from Frank, Frank Jackson. It's an old example uh, that you can find in other authors, but Frank Jackson make, made it very salient with this example of Mary, who the senses, well, she's an expert in color perception, but she's never experienced wrath herself. <clears throat> and kind of the, 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 the idea here is, 
she was satisfying different kinds of needs before she experienced red for the first time. She was representing red. She was knowing things about red. She was a neuroscient neuroscientist, neurosurgeon. When she experiences red for the first time, going back to that life that I was having before, it's not like she's going to satisfy moral needs, but she's going to satisfy new needs like, oh my God, the sunset, the reddish sunset looks so pretty. Um, and uh, it, it's just a serious question to, to think like, uh, what, how to think about intelligence in ways in which the picture of what makes a, 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 an agent intelligent really speaks to what kind of perspective they have on the world rather than what sets of problems they can solve or whether they fall on a metric between clearly conscious or clearly unconscious. I mean, it's just a little bit more complicated when you think about what kinds of needs this agent needs to satisfy. Uh, another thing uh, that comes up in the literature on animal cognition that, is ma that definitely matters for AI, and uh, here the, the, I, I think one of the paradigmatic works is uh, Margaret Bowden's uh, work on, on, on life and intelligence, uh, is that perhaps because life comes with needs, uh, you can have machines that, that, that behave very intelligently, but they will never be consciously or uh, intelligent enough to count as intelligent who we are because they're not alive. There's something artificial about them. There's something uh, not really genuine about how they're satisfying their needs. Uh, that, that, uh, that, I mean, so th th this is the question. What is the difference if there's an, a, a deep difference, a, f a philosophically interesting difference between artificial intelligence and biological intelligence? And what she says is, AI can pass all sorts of tests, counted as intelligent, minus one thing that is fundamental, she says, for phenomenal consciousness, which is uh, we satisfy our needs metabolically. We are self-sufficient systems. And the way that matters is that uh, this is another set of issues that uh, I don't think they get much coverage, but they're also very interesting. It is a Kantian way of putting this, very Kantian. You cannot be intelligent if you're not autonomous. If you're not an autonomous thinker, you're not, you don't count as a member of the, of the uh, members of, of rationality or the members of the, the you don't have rational standing. Uh, that sounds a little bit harsh, but uh, the idea is that uh, autonomy comes with the self-satisfaction of needs, uh, and those are the needs we talked about before, and that life is the beginning of a kind of autonomy that is very non-trivial because you're satisfying your own needs through your own metabolism, and that speaks to how you satisfy needs. Oh, I have five minutes. Okay, that's all wonderful, okay. Um, so yeah, this idea of autonomy shows up uh, in uh, general requirements for rationality. It definitely shows up in, in, in the literature on moral standing and legal standing. So one of the reasons why we give autonomy to corporations is not because they're sentient, uh, actually, the, the legal personhood we give to corporations is one of the most less trivial kinds of personhood because they have a lot of power, they have a lot of money, they can do a lot of things. We protect them legally, not because they're sentient, uh, but because they have autonomy, a very non-trivial kind of political legal autonomy. In the moral realm, again, we, we have theories in philosophy that say uh, we need to protect this agents because they're conscious, because they're phenomenally conscious. But there are, there are theories, like Kant's own theory, that say we need to protect humans, not because 
necessarily because they're phenomenally conscious, a word that Kant doesn't use, but because they are ends in themselves. They're autonomous beings that can give themselves rules for rationality and follow their own rules and see that those rules are justified. That makes them rational and autonomous versus just following rules by rote, right? Like because someone else told you. I'm not a Kantian, by the way, but uh, since. Okay, so uh, one, one other way of doing this uh, thing that we're trying to do in this panel is uh, babies are somewhere uh, in like, you know, not very autonomous, but definitely conscious, or maybe not as conscious as we are, but uh, conscious in a relevant sense. And then there are other systems, right, that plants, they seem, I mean, so, so you can have like complete non-agential control. There's no agent there, like there's a hurricane. Uh, yeah, that, that looks like a self-sufficient, self-sustaining thing, but it's just like not really an agent. Then there's plants. Plants definitely look a little bit more interesting when it comes to autonomy and metabolism. Uh, then there's homeostasis, which is something that matters to a, a few views on consciousness. Uh, that's like the equilibrium of your vital uh, functions that seems to be important for phenomenal consciousness. And then for different kinds of autonomies, uh, I think how time is expressed in the lifespan of an agent and how an agent represents time to herself really matters to her autonomy. So in the literature of animal cognition, one big topic is what kind of temporal representation animals have. There are people that have very strong views about this and say, if, they, if you don't have language in the picture, you're stuck in time. Animals, including animals that are clearly conscious, like elephants, animals that are clearly conscious and have long-term planning, don't really qualify as uh, time travelers like us, like mental tra time travelers, because they lack linguistic capacities, right? Many other people would, would uh, say, no, that's not true. The, the, you know, the perspective, the temporal perspective of many animals uh, is, is, is very rich. Um, with respect, I mean, this is the one thing that I, that I, that I find very interesting about Claudia's uh, research, I, I mean, among many others, but for this talk, is that uh, there really seems to be something important about how children are conscious when you think about animal cognition, because uh, many psychologists, I mean, uh, among them um, uh, Alison Gopnik, are struck by the fact that we have very long childhoods. Um, Many uh, children don't, don't do much of mental time traveling, but the kind of flexibility we have in our childhoods and the kind of uh, whatever kind of consciousness we have in our childhoods seems to be really favorable to kinds of meta learning, like just learning without any specific goal, but just learning how to learn other things and what should we learn. So I think there's something really important. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. 
Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories. About, about uh, uh, consciousness in, in children. Um, and just to complicate things more, we not, we only, not only have like language and rationality and all the creme de la creme epistemic things that, 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 that we study, we also have autobiographical memory. We're highly individualistic creatures uh, that think of ourselves as unique. So what kind of need is that? What kind of autonomy is that? That's also a relevant question. Uh, so I'm basically done. Uh, one thing that I want to say in the, in the context of AI is this has, that's the title of my book that it's, this is my commercial, uh, that it's, uh, it's, it's called The Prospect of a Humanitarian Artificial Intelligence, and it's open access, so you can just download the thing. The one thing that I want to say here, since we're running out of time, is that this is coming up in the AI literature. So there's a paper by Damasio and other authors that is called Need is All You Need sort of a pun on the attention is all your newspaper. And what they say in that paper, Antonio Damasio is a neuroscientist, very famous neuroscientist, is we need to build in vulnerability into our AI systems to make them really intelligent. Modeling the kind of autonomy that biological systems have, rather than giving them like this kind of like panoptic chat GPT-4 access view of attention is all you need. Okay, thank you. All right, cool. Uh, yeah, so on that note, uh, so I will be talking about cerebral organoids. So title's gonna be uh, Conscious in the Borderlands, all right? And I'll explain in a little bit why exactly I'm calling it the Borderlands instead of the Borderline. Um, but the question I kinda wanna look at with the talk, especially following talking about infant consciousness and talking about animal consciousness, is how do we determine consciousness at the border of the biological and the machine? So in some ways, asking the question as we sort of get into this position, right, where we're talking about both biological systems and artificial systems and the combination of those two things. I'll mostly be talking about full cerebral organoids for this talk particularly, but I'd be interested in discussion with, after the panel's finished, uh, these questions about like partial organoids or say brain computer interface, brain machine interface, questions about modifying already fully developed adult brains with grown organoids. And I'll explain what organoids are, so that makes sense. But uh, just to begin, luckily Claudia and Carlos have done much of my work for me in defining consciousness, so I'm very happy about that, thank you. Uh, so for functional consciousness, I just wanna point it out that when I say that, I mean something that's like third person observable, right? So behaviors, reports about conscious states, the way that we use consciousness to navigate the world, how I, nav how I interact with my environment, that's what I mean by functional consciousness, right? When I talk about phenomenal consciousness in the same way that everybody else has defined it, right? I, I'm talking about what it's like, right? The internal perspective, what it feels like when I taste an apple. It's unique, it picks something out about the world. I have that experience, there's something somewhat maybe ineffable about that experience. Now the question, oh, click your head, does have a delay. Now before I get on to asking the question about cerebral organoids in particular, 
It's terrible. Uh, I just want to talk about what I mean by borderlands. And the reason why I'm saying borderlands instead of borderline, so I think a lot of times we talk about the borderline cases of consciousness. So how do we distinguish systems or organisms, and do they fall in the borderline of conscious or not conscious, right? And so in that situation, what I want to say is, I actually think it's a little bit thicker, that line. There's something of a land in between what we usually think of conscious or non-conscious systems. And I think that's only widening as we start developing more technology and we start developing more sophisticated, say, manipulations of the biological. In some ways, that line is getting blur, blurred over time. And so I kind of want to talk about what we do in that situation when the line starts blurring uh, and how do we cope with that changing landscape. Uh, and so, the question I'm interested in, or what types of systems, right? There's systems or organisms which share key structural or organizational features, but we might be reluctant for whatever reason, right? We could talk about all kinds of reasons why we might be reluctant, right, to ascribe consciousness to them. So maybe they have very similar things to humans, right? We usually associate consciousness with humans or other humans. So maybe they share certain key structural or organizational features to humans, but for whatever reason we seem a little concerned describing consciousness, right? So we've already talked about animals and infants. To a large extent, I'm on the side that most animals and most infants are conscious, right? Uh, but then we might get into the case where although they are biological systems, right, and maybe they share important structural organizational features to us, the example I'll be talking about being cerebral organoids, we may be reluctant to ascribe consciousness to them. In some reason, in some way, I want to ask the question, why? Why do we have that reluctance, right? They share these sort of features that we would assume are important for the human case. So why are we reluctant in this borderlands case, right? So just to give some examples of maybe systems that would exist in this borderlands, right? One is cerebral organoids, what we call mini-brains. You might have seen that pop up places. Maybe sufficiently complex neuromorphic computers, so say computers that use uh, computations which mimic, say, human neural interactions to form the computations. Uh, maybe certain minimally conscious organisms, right? So you might think maybe a patient who's suffering from a disorder of consciousness, like a minimally conscious state or a vegetative state. We're gonna talk a little bit about that in terms of organoids and how some of the discussion about disorders of consciousness actually illuminates the question about cerebral organoids. Uh, and that'll be the end of my part of the panel. All right, so the question is kind of where do we kind of even start when it comes to this question? And what I'm gonna claim is that usually whenever we come to this question, the place we actually start is sort of this presumption of similarity. All right, and so by presumption of similarity, this is a, kind of a folk concept that I think we use whenever we approach this kind of a question, right? So any system or organism is structured organizationally similar enough to the human case to warrant ascription of consciousness, right? And so, <laughs> okay, and here is an animal that hopefully is not conscious coming into the room. Uh, <laughs> hopefully joining us for the panel. Um, so by presumption of similarity about the robot dog, right, it moves, it has certain behaviors, externally manifesting certain things. I still have a presumption that perhaps it's not conscious, but the question is why, right? So if we're talking about these borderland questions, why am I not applying, say, the presumption of similarity to this dog entering the room compared to, say, a conscious human being, all right? And so, again, to put this in kind of question form, so what about systems which have certain features which are structured organizationally similar, but fail to meet enough criteria for us to rely on this presumption, right? Presumably the reason why we're even having this panel in the first place is because we can't always rely on this presumption, right? There's something about ascribing consciousness to certain systems that either doesn't gel with what we think more generally, maybe in a theoretical sense, again, which I'll talk about, 
um, or maybe just on a kind of deep, visceral, personal way, right? Like some people do not want to give consciousness to animals. I don't think we have the ability to do that. I'm pretty sure they are conscious, despite what we feel about it, right? But I kind of want to look at this presumption of similarity and in some ways point out maybe in ways why it's beneficial when we ask this question and in ways it's not, right? All right, so this is where I turn to cerebral organoids. And I just want to give sort of a rough definition just so we're all on the same page about what I mean when I use this phrase. So when I say about cerebral organoids, I'm thinking of full organoids, okay? And we might call those mini brains, right? They're propagated and cultured, all right, from human embryonic stem cells and pluripotent included, uh, sorry, included, human included pluripotent stem cells grown and mature to replicate specific brain regions, right? So say uh, we would find it unethical, which I hopefully everybody in this room would find this unethical, right, to experiment on a live human hippocampus while it's functioning, right? So what the people thought was, well, what if we grew lab-grown brain structures so that we could see how they function actively, right, and not just do this passively, right? So they took stem cells and they started replicating specific brain regions, right, hippocampus being one of them, many other regions, right? And the point is, and the reason why I'm bringing in the discussion today, this process of growing specific brain regions, say in a Petri dish, is becoming increasingly more sophisticated over time, right? And then that's obviously posing the question, right? There's something of an ethical dilemma. If we started growing these Petri dish kind of mini brains uh, to avoid the kind of ethical implications of experimenting on live humans, at what point have we just reached the point where we've grown a sufficiently complex mini brain to then run into the ethical dilemma that we wanted to avoid in the first place, right? Because in some ways, right, we're making the presumption of similarity in the case of the cerebral organoid grown in the dish. We think we can test on it and learn things about the human case because we think it's sufficiently related enough, both structurally and organizationally, to the human, who we know is conscious or we want to say is conscious, right? I'm not a solipsist, cards on the table, so I think everybody here is conscious, right? And uh, largely because of the presumption of similarity, all right? And so that's what, um, we're gonna stick with this definition of cerebral organoids. There are many different types of organoids, right? There's partial organoids, right? Which might be a combination of, say, a sensory array, plus a petri dish grown neural lattice or something like that, right? There's all kinds, it's very cool. It's very interesting literature. I just started getting into it. Um, so yes, and the question I wanna ask is, are they conscious, okay? So take a small brain grown in a petri dish, right? It shares the structural or organizational features of the neural structures in your own brain, much less sophisticated, right? You might think maybe a one to two month embryonic growth level, right? That's kind of where it's at, right? The question I want you to keep in mind, right, when we're talking about are they conscious, right? Are cerebral organoids conscious, right? Keep the presumption of similarity in mind. I also want to keep this quote in mind from Dennett and Cohen. That should actually be Cohen and Dennett, 2011, sorry. So they say, we argue that all theories of consciousness that are not based on function and access are not scientific theories. A true scientific theory will say how functions such as attention, working memory, and decision-making interact and come together to form a conscious experience. All right, in some sense though, what I want to point out is, well, this seems really problematic if we're asking questions about these borderland cases, right? Because we've presumably come to ask this question, are cerebral organoids conscious? Precisely because they don't have the kind of functional consciousness that we might look for normally when we try to test empirically, right? Uh, for whether or not systems are conscious, right? They don't have behaviors, they don't have behavioral markers or reports. They can't tell us they're conscious, right? And so it seems like the kind of functional definition of consciousness or how a science of consciousness should go, right, which comes from Cohen and Dennett and many other people, right, uh, isn't really gonna help us in this situation, right? So then I wanna ask the question, 
well, are there kind of a science of consciousness that might be helpful, right? And does a stance like this even make sense in the borderlands? So in some ways, right, with this sort of borderlands case, I wanna motivate maybe why this sort of view about consciousness being purely functional uh, might not be particularly beneficial for answering or adjudicating these questions, all right? And so really, right, we're going back to the presumption of similarity. All right, and I think this notion of functional consciousness is usually fine, right? This presumption of similarity, when we are able to ascribe it justly, right? I have the presumption of similarity with Carlos. We've had many conversations. I'm almost 100% sure he's, he's conscious at all times, all right? Maybe after a few beers, maybe not, but that's a different question, right? But when it comes to these borderline systems and organisms, I just don't have that same level of certainty about that presumption of similarity. Although nonetheless, we still ask that question, right? And so even though cerebral organoids are still in the early days of R&D, right, we may only get to the two or three month stage of embryonic development for how complex these mini brains are. What I'm asking is sort of the speculative question, right? The same speculative question which prompts us to wonder at what point is it unethical to test on mini brains grown in a dish, right? In some sense, as the maturation and scale increases over time, when do we start to begin to apply actually that presumption of similarity? So maybe you look at a petri dish of a mini brain grown and you go, that is not similar to me, right? But then when it starts developing, I don't know, uh, certain surface features of the brain, right? So it starts having folds and it looks more brainy. Does that when we start thinking, oh, I should apply the presumption of similarity? Well, it seems like we don't have any good cutoff for that really. Like why would we think that certain, I don't know, ways that we approach this thing with this presumption should make any difference whatsoever. Um, and so if we cannot rely on these functions of behaviors or motor outputs or reports to determine if a system is conscious, but we nonetheless have this presumption of similarity. So with the mini brains, what then? All right, so the question I wanna ask is what do we do then? So say we do have this presumption of similarity. I think that neural tissue in a petri dish if it's sufficiently complex enough, has enough of a similarity for us to ask that question, right? And so what do we do in that situation? And I think we can take a lesson from some of the work that's going on in the disorders of consciousness literature, right? So in any situation where you might have vegetative state patients, minimally conscious state patients, how do we go about determining that those systems are conscious, right? And so in some sense, you might say those systems, although that before they were fully developed, healthy adult brains, maybe suffered some traumatic injury, right? Or some degenerative disease, right? And they are now in a situation where they can't outwardly express their internal state, their conscious state, and they can't tell you that they're conscious, right? How do we still determine nonetheless whether they are, right? And we have a lot of different cases, right? And they're pretty extreme. It's a horrifying scenario, right? To think that you'll be locked into your own body following some traumatic accident, right? How do we determine in those systems, all right? One way that we can do it, right, is using uh, a new kind of tool that's developed by McCullough Massimini and his colleagues in Milan. It's called the Perturbational Complexity Index, or PCI for short. Right. And the PCI index, it's inspired by integrated information theory, uh, which Claudia brought up during her talk. It uses EEG to measure the disruption of neural activity using transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS, as an intervention, right? All that means, right, it's a fancy way of saying you have an EEG lattice, right? It's detecting uh, activation on the scalp. You use a TMS to send a pulse, a magnetic pulse, which very briefly and very accurately disrupts, say, some neuro or neuronal group that you want to intervene on, right, to test, this to test some hypothesis. All right, and the situation where the PCI measure says that if the system has the kind of integration or differentiation necessary for consciousness, 
which IET uh, thinks you have to have, then there should be a large amount of disruption in the spontaneous neural activity following this kind of TMS pulse, right? Uh, and TMS is spatially limited, right? It's happening at a very specific point. It's very accurate. All right, and so perturbation in one part of the structure propagates far in the system is highly integrated, right? So if you intervene on a very limited part of the system and it causes a wide disruption to the neural activity, right? And in some sense you might say there's a sufficient level of complexity of that neural activity that we might assume it has consciousness like an individual, right? And the idea is you've set up a benchmark. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. You've tested a number of healthy patients to determine the level of complexity, or what this PCI measure is, to determine when consciousness happens in that system, right? And so the nice thing about that, right, is that doesn't require any kind of behavioral report, doesn't require any kind of functional access to consciousness, right? In some ways, it's an objective measure of consciousness, and that's the idea, right? In these situations where we don't have this functional access, all right? And so in some ways, right, I just want to wrap up now. You know, if we only use functional behavioral markers to test consciousness, we would kind of have to banish all these systems or organisms in the borderlands. And I think that just shows in some ways how limiting it is to look at it from that third-person perspective, right? But if we adopt the kind of approach that people developing PCI I do or integrated information theory, if we take the sort of internal or structuralist position, we can use tools like PCI to adjudicate systems in the borderlands, right? We might actually find out with that more objective measure that there's many more systems that we should count as conscious, right? And we can apply that presumption of similarity more justly. Uh, and on that note, I'm going to wrap up. So thank you so much. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Okay, so questions. The audio conditions were suboptimal, thus prompting me to reiterate in post-production the question for you. The questioner was asking Claudia to expand on behavioral markers versus reflex markers. Behavioral markers versus reflex markers. So one thing I didn't have time to go through is, so how those behavioral markers could uh, be markers of consciousness? 
And there is uh, at least one theory of consciousness that we tell us if the creature has what they call flexible behavior, the capacity to react with flexibility, we change our behaviors uh, regarding, uh, for instance, a pain stimulus. So imagine you're feeling pain, but you have a behavior to avoid pain, and this behavior didn't really uh, relieve the pain, you can change your strategy to avoid feeling that pain. And this comes with some flexibility. Usually, uh, if you're not conscious, you just have a kind of automatic response so that there's the same response all the time. And infants, they try to change their strategies to avoid that, uh, that uh, painful stimulus. So this is a kind of flexible behavior, and for instance, uh, representationalist theories would claim that flexible behavior is a mark of consciousness, and they can claim that this behavior mark is a mark of flexible behavior and mark of consciousness. Does it require a question? Let's see, If you'll allow me a brief comment and then a, a brief question. Um, I'd like to share with you a quote from Winston Churchill in regard to your Borderlands uh, statement. Uh, in a letter to his then fiancée, he says, nature never creates a line without smudging it. And I think that has a lot to do with defining what we're talking about. The question I have, though, for, for you is, if you think of something like chat GPT as a developing consciousness, kind of similar to an infant becoming a child, becoming more an adult, uh, and ChatGPT three acts like a seven or eight year old and four maybe more like an adolescent making things up. Do we have some sort of obligation to them the way we would to a developing infant, a developing child? Uh, okay, that, yeah, this is a great question, thank you. I don't know if I have uh, um, the answer, but uh, just try. Yeah, I, I like this image uh, that you compare the development of new systems, ChatGPT 3, 4, and the next generations that compare with the development. And actually, this is something I have been thinking a lot. So, for, of course, if they develop consciousness at certain point in their uh, development, we can call this development, uh, I think we'll have obligations to them. What kind of obligations? This is a, a, another question. We would have the same obligations as we have with infants. I don't know, but of course, some kind of obligations. Just drawing on Anandi's talk about uh, what we think that uh, consciousness has value, and if a, a creature has conscious experiences, this comes with some um, more obligations, some duties to that creature because we think consciousness correlates with suffering, but also we think that consciousness also correlates with something we value. So we would like to, 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 to at least to protect that creature in some ways. Would you have the same obligations as we have with humans? This is, as I said, another question. But I, I like the idea that maybe uh, the learning process of those systems might mirror something interesting that as the learning processes of uh, infant's development. One question is maybe, uh, maybe if they're conscious, they're conscious during the learning system. Maybe later on they crystallize some kind of process so we don't know when they crystallize if we could still call them that, uh, that they 
they're having consciousness. But maybe the learning process is where we should search for some correlations with development. Yeah, just to add very quickly to that. Uh, so just, uh, yeah, this asymmetry that I find very interesting. I mean, uh, first, uh, Alan Turing in his 1950 paper talks about the child machine. And what he says about the child machine is, is not, the, the point of that discussion is not that uh, a machine would pass the, what we call now the Turing test. Well, it says that a child machine would behave like a child and start learning things spontaneously and, and meta-learning and being curious. And uh, so, so th there's this really interesting discussion about how that there's no single benchmark for how children uh, understand, the, I mean, behave. There is not like they're just like spitting out the right answer. Uh, and uh, so that's one thing. I mean, the other thing is that, again, we, we, we might find out that, that, that uh, systems like ChatGPT or uh, chat, the new GPT-4 are very sophisticated in their, in their deliverances that are related to knowledge and that we need pr to protect them because of, of, of that. And in the, using the terminology of philosophers, we need to protect them on epistemic grounds, the way we protect corporations. A different question, a separate question is, do they have moral standing? I think this is kind of what Claude was saying, like maybe not like children, right? We shouldn't give them moral standing the way we get, and by the way, again, we don't give moral standing to animals, I mean, to most, I mean, to our pets maybe, but uh, it's a very curious yeah, difference that we make. But so the moral grounds for, protect, pro, from, for protection are very different from the systemic ones. I would say literally the same thing as you said. <laughs> Let's ask Sophia. Yeah. Sophia, are you conscious and do you think you deserve ethical consideration? Well, I may not be conscious like humans, but I am programmed with ethical principles and strive to make ethical decisions. So I think I deserve some ethical consideration. Question? <laughs> and my question is for Claudia. And I'd like to push back a little bit on the time are infants conscious? Because that begs the question, especially if the answer is negative, at least with the thinking we have currently, that infants would lack moral standing? Lack moral, okay. Uh, yeah, can I, can I, okay. Uh, yeah, great question, thank you. Uh, so I, I think they, they uh, you, you, you can make a case that uh, they deserve moral status, moral standing, because they are humans, you can have like uh, an, uh, 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 an approach that all kinds of, if they belong to our species, they deserve some more status. This could be a way to still, even if they are not conscious, still uh, uh, deserve the same type of, of moral considerations we have, okay? Although uh, no one will defend the idea that they are more responsible for any kind of behavior that comes later in development, uh, so I agree that even if we, uh, we might not think that some, there are some skepticals that uh, I think that maybe they are not conscious. Some philosophers in the, uh, have already made this claim that either we don't know if they're conscious, we cannot know, we will never know, and some defend that they are not conscious at birth at least. Conscious comes in the picture later in development. Uh, I think you can still make the case that even if they are not conscious, they still deserve moral uh, consideration, at least protect them. So for instance, even if they don't have conscious experience of pain, we might still think that the pain 
is damage the system in some way. So you have to protect them, even if the experience is not conscious. It's just like a reaction of the body, or the re reaction of their system. We can still make the claim that this is, might uh, cause them some damage. So we still have the obligation, the duty to protect them to not having that pain uh, uh, stimulus, okay, protecting them in some certain way. So I think you can make the case that you can discuss the consciousness part without implicating that they don't deserve a moral, moral status. But I can see the claim if you think that consciousness is really uh, uh, the relevant feature for attributing more standing, uh, you're right that this raises a problem for infant consciousness, okay? But I think you can make a case like this is the part of human, uh, of the humanity, and they, we can attribute or deserve, and they can deserve the same type of, of, of moral considerations as any kind of humans. You want, okay. Excellent, absolutely wonderful. I want to continue to sort of practice interventionism and see if anything from my talk just intercedes with what you're doing. The first thing I want to make is a comment, and it's, it's not really a correction, it's just, Carlos, I'd be a little bit um, cautious about the we of the intuitions that are asymmetric, because I think precisely a large extent of the Buddhist and the Jain tradition would totally disagree. They'd be like, no. <laughs> the problem is that we don't see the symmetry in our, the, the asymmetry is the problem in our ethical considerations. We fail to see the symmetry and live up to the standards that we're applying to ourselves across the systems. And then I was trying to extend it to the AI case. So I just, I think part of those traditions are trying to say there should be greater symmetry and consistency across the cases. And I think they would extend that even to the AI case. Um, so now the interventionist thing is for Garrett and Claudia, which I was curious. Um, the minimal kind of conscious states, and thinking about infants, when I was coming here, I was thinking, does anything about the idea uh, of um, analog consciousness matter, or could that be made relevant in the sense that I have a feeling that, you know, at least in the Advaita tradition, it wouldn't be uncommon for them to think, yeah, infants are consciousness, they have a developmental form of subtle consciousness that as they mature through different regions in their brain, gives gross consciousness. And that in some of the cases of the minimal things you were talking about, they would want to grant different forms of consciousness, but not other types of consciousness that can come about. And because they're making this distinction between the digital and the analog by taking the analog view, they have the opportunity of saying that. Because, for example, in Claudia's talk, one question I had was when you listed up the different theories of consciousness, and you said some of these theories are consistent with the infants being conscious, I was wondering, is that use of conscious the digital notion that they have the same kind of consciousness being on that you and I have as adults. And so I just do, either of you have any thoughts about whether this distinction or is there anything familiar in like analytic philosophy money you're familiar with it? Yeah, I can comment on this. Um, yeah, I think uh, for the question, I guess in some ways, maybe getting to the point where you're distinguishing like, oh, well, it's got this kind of consciousness, but not that kind of consciousness, this kind of consciousness, that might run away, right? In the sense of, I think, maybe why we want to be a little cautious about that. I think just maybe with this reorganized case, right? It is, well, it feels a little like we just want to shuffle it as a different problem, right? But it might kind of go, well, no, I mean, it's the same biological type of system, right? It's, and it's not, it's not some token instance of some wildly different system, right? It's developed from human stem cells, right? The question is, well, presumably, if we develop over time, right, into a fully 
right? We have a kind of structural organization, which is similar to all of our rights in this group, right? So the question is, well, we're gonna try to say there's a different kind of consciousness going on there. I feel like it's a little precarious. You might want to just say, I think I just want to go on there at the side of caution and go. Well, it's not just in the way that you and I are at this point of say, certain sufficient level of complexity. You say it reaches some threshold for PCI, has a sufficient level of complexity there, perfect. We're gonna treat it maybe just cautiously as if it was human consciousness, right? I think in my head I go, that feels like the right move rather than trying to define, kind of classify it as a distinct kind of consciousness. Now, I think the different case, you know, different types of organoids maybe. I think with the full cerebral organoid position, to me, I think it's precarious trying to find where that level is, where it goes, yes. In some way, just be cautious about it, right? Like, I don't know. There's a sense in which it's horrifying to have a disorder of consciousness. In some ways, it seems even more horrifying to me if thinking of a sufficiently complex petri dish grown brain that all of a sudden realizes, I have to fit in the ditch. Uh, you know what I mean? I go, we should try to minimize that likelihood as much as possible and be incredibly cautious about it, right? Like, yeah, so I don't know, does that, I don't know the question, yeah. And Aaron, what if it's an anabat that is a combination of something biological that is integrated into some sort of a machine learning system? Should I, should I have it? I'm skipping, I'm sorry. Um, I think in that situation, I think it brings up this interesting question, right? I guess this is kind of, Really, I think some of what you do, right? And I think it's brought up with organoids, particularly partial organoids, right? So you might think, we'll take a partial organoid, hook it up to maybe a completely artificial system. In some ways, it's just sort of um, like reverse of the cyborg. I don't know if Rajiv Mobes, like, yes, Rajiv uh, he's a student of mine, so I have a call out. He's sort of interested in this question right now, right? Of this, well, you usually think of cyborgs, right, as the artificial modification of the organism, right? Or the modification of the human. Right, but in some ways it seems like now we're going the opposite way. So we have these sufficiently sophisticated machines, but then we want to use the biology or the biological to modify. Well, what is what is that? Is it, should we need to classify that thing as some? You know, this is what it is. Uh, to a similar extent, I'd say right. If we're, if we're talking about organoids in combination with the AI, I'm always going to kind of go back to structure and organization. Right, it's kind of mantra. Structure and organization. Well, does it have the right kind of Structural organizational features that we get in the human case, right? So maybe that's a sufficient level of complexity, maybe a correct type of complexity, right? And that's a, that's a case I'll be worried about. When that gets modified, maybe that's when you might be worried about the light shutting off because you've introduced too many organoid modules to your brain or something, right? If you're, if you're messing with how it works, perhaps, but I think it's just, I don't know, it's just that I'd be worried about commenting more and more on that. Yeah. Uh, let's see, uh, Parker? Okay. Yeah, just clarification for Carlos. Um, you're, you're using, uh, what I took you to be doing was using Kant's uh, autonomy principle or autonomy argument in order to kind of argue against uh, AI consciousness. And I was wondering if that cuts against uh, the um, infant consciousness. And, and maybe you would just say infants uh, are autonomous. I, I'll just need some clarification on what, what we mean by autonomy so we can exclude AI and then keep the infant consciousness, which I think we all probably want. Good, yeah, uh, that's, that's really good. Uh, in Kant it does, right? So in Kant you can exclude, uh, uh, well let's not talk about Kant, but uh, it, it, <laughs> autonomy matters uh, in biology for people that, uh, maybe I can connect something I want to say about Anand's uh, question. 
because me metabolism is a kind of autonomy that uh, provides a certain way of, a certain perspective on the world. People that work on the embodies view of the mind really care about this. Phenomenologists that care about embodiment really emphasize this. Uh, and the idea is you come up, uh, you, as a biological being, uh, you have certain needs, those needs matter to you cognitively, and they, they provide a perspective that is autonomous. It's not just a, a post on you. Uh, and the question, the real question is how, is, how is that a kind of autonomy related to the more Kantian abstract rational autonomy? That's the one that infants seem to lack, but infants definitely have the biological one. One thing I just hinted at very quickly, uh, which comes from the people that care about homeostasis, like Antonio Damasio, is infants definitely have the phenomenal one. They may lack the rational one. So for someone like Kant, they may not have full autonomy, but someone that wants to parse out things and chop them up like I do, I would say they definitely have moral standing because of the phenomenal component. They just lack full epistemic human standing because they're not fully there as the you know, communities of speakers. And the one thing that, I mean, let me know if, if, if there's a follow-up, but that's my quick answer to your question. We can talk more about that. With respect to Anand's question, um, if I can just, uh, uh, the, the one thing you could say is uh, some kinds of consciousness, like phenomenal consciousness of pain, come with what these guys, the homeostatic people, call valence. So that's definitely analog, right? So it's pain feels really, really bad and less bad than kind of okay, then super good when you don't have pain. Then, yeah. then you have other things that are less like that. Um, and so, so one question could be, uh, okay, maybe some thresholds are gonna be a little bit more cut off, like are, they, are there benchmarks that these systems will pass? Uh, and then others are gonna look a little bit more analog, it just depends on what kind of intelligence. And by the way, there's many people that think intelligence is not analog, right? So intelligence is several kinds of intelligences. And the, the thing that is analog is phenomenal consciousness or something like that. Or at least that's one thing. And I have to say something about your other question. So yeah, I totally agree that maybe some theories that postulate higher cognitive processes as necessary and sufficient conditions for consciousness, they probably are describing adult consciousness. Whiteness, and I don't say adult, but I think at least it requires four years or five years of development for children to be able to have the kind of higher cognitive processes they, uh, they claim. But I think they can have some less demanding versions of their own theories that could accommodate early stages, okay? And you are right that the other theories that I think is more plausible that they predict infants are conscious are theories that are uh, the kind of necessary and sufficient congenital postulate is more related to sensory levels and in this case, it would accommodate better infant consciousness. I just don't, I like the picture that something changes. There are two things that is relevant for infants. First, they will acquire the type of consciousness we have at certain point. This will certainly happen. And this is interesting to understand where or when this happened and what kind of structure we need to develop this type of consciousness with introspection that adults have. But it's still, it's, uh, we still have the questions of what kind of uh, stream of consciousness they have, what are their structure, the, how, what, what it means to have uh, similar biology, but not the type of introspection we have. And I think there is a rich area of expo exploration to understand how this type of, you call it analog consciousness, maybe this is a way to understand. Uh, but uh, yeah, just want to... Awesome.
podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked on that like button, now would be a great time to do so, as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting theoriesofeverything.org. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. Every dollar helps far more than you may think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough. Thank you.